Hey, everybody, this is John Halpin. Welcome to HMH's Future of Transportation podcast. On this show, we host a regular series of chats with experts in the transportation industry. And joining me today is Patrick Goddard, president of Brightline. Patrick, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, John. Great to be here. Um, so Brightline, I'm going to read from their website, aims to redefine travel in America by taking cars off the road and offering millions of travelers an eco-friendly way to move between the nation's most tr- visited city pairs. OK, so city pairs is an interesting way to put this. Can you can you talk about what that means? Yeah. Um, so obviously there's a whole variety of options when it comes to train travel uh, uh, across the U.S. and the world. We are singularly focused on connecting cities that are too far to drive and too long to fly. So, so, so what we look at are corridors that are between 200 and 400 miles apart, right. very densely populated cities that are connected by congested highways. Um, so we look at those pairs, right? We, look, we think of those as a pair. So Miami to Orlando, uh, Charlotte to Atlanta, uh, LA to Vegas, Dallas to Houston, those are all city pairs that are, you know, fall into that category of uh, too short to fly, too long to drive. Okay. So when you do that, it, it's, it makes perfect sense, right? I was, I was actually, and I was going to mention later, I was on a trip last week, was on a family vacation, and I was in Southern California. And, you know, the rental car prices were really expensive. And I said, why don't we take the train between San Diego and Orange County? And I kind of thought of you guys when, when I did it. And it, it, is that... It's not a common thing for people in this country to take the train. And, and it's it's it makes sense. It, 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 it took me 90 minutes and I said, wow, you didn't have to get a car. I didn't have to drive. So there's less effort. I didn't have to fly. It was great. Changing people's behavior in that manner has got to be really hard. How are you guys want to do that? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, it's an interesting story, John, because that's what it takes. It takes that initial experience doing it and like let me ask you after you did it would you travel by train again yes it was easy i mean i will say that this particular experience it was amtrak's pacific surfliner it went along the pacific ocean so it was a phenomenal view but yes you know we we were staying downtown so we walked to the train station in san diego we hopped on it we we got to within three miles of where we wanted to be so it was a much less i didn't have to go park at the airport you know and i didn't have to drive which was great So I really liked it. I guess the part of it is, I'll give you a personal example. And I know you're not a commuter train, so it's a little different. But I live in a suburb of Charlotte where I I don't have, I'm a New Yorker, you know, by birth. And I grew up there. So it was easy for me to take public transportation and take trains. I was used to trains. Here, it's hard to get to them. And I imagine that, that getting to the train station, if it's 15 minutes away, it's great. If it's 45 minutes, maybe not so much. That's right. Yeah, I mean... Location of the train station is a really important component, um, you know, because really what you want to be doing is downtown to downtown. The most successful intercity transportation system in this country is the Acela service in the Northeast, uh, where you can get from downtown Manhattan to downtown D.C. or Philly or Boston, um, you know, without ever needing to drive to the Beltway or drive from the Beltway uh, to get, you know, to get to the actual, to, to get to the transportation system. So, um, so what I would say is, you know, there is, there is a stigma. I mean, if you go, if you think about the history of train travel in the United States, we were all about trains until about the sixties. 
uh, really the 50s. So after the Second World War, while Europe and Asia were rebuilding all of their train systems and improving them and making them into high-speed systems, uh, the U.S. pretty much abandoned train travel and invested billions of dollars as a result of the Federal uh, Highway Act. Uh, because they believe that, you know, everybody's going to want this independence. They're going to want to have a car. So, you know, now 70 years later, all those highways are congested. Uh, right. You know, average speeds are 20, 30 miles an hour on most of them. So mm-hmm. we're now w- realizing that we need options. We need different alternative ways to get between, you know, cities. Uh, because, you know, you, you you now have two extremes. You've got air travel and you've got car travel. So we believe that. Um, and, and again, just to delve into the history uh, and to give you a little bit of the landscape in the United States, we probably have, have the best freight rail network on the planet. But we have, mm-hmm. you know, we have an embarrassing passenger rail network uh, uh, as it relates to Asia and Europe uh, for now. So we do need to change that. And there's a lot of dialogue about that from Congress to private companies, you know, about changing that. I think everybody understands that that people need lots of mobility options. Um, mm-hmm. It's not a one size fits all. It's an ecosystem and people have different means. Uh, so we really need to consider all of the alternatives and train travels being a viable alternative everywhere else in the world for the last five decades. Um, it just really hasn't existed here until we showed up a few years ago. So you talked about investment in in other countries in trains, but that's that's government investment generally, right? Not necessarily. So okay. uh, you know, not necessarily. So what what well, what typically happens, for example, in in the EU or in Asia, and, and definitely in Asia, it's more government investment investment. But but in Europe, what you what what are more common are uh, where where the government builds the infrastructure and then leases it out to a concession. So, you know, Eurostar, that's a concessionaire, um, you know, Italo in Italy, that's a concessionaire, Renfe is a concessionaire. So, so we're unique, Brightline's unique in that we own the infrastructure and we are the operator. Uh, that's a pretty unique model. Um, and, you know, as we think about um, deploying system a system like this and having an actual high-speed rail network in the United States, it'll be a composition of a variety of different models, whether they're government-run, like, you know, the Pacific Surfliner that you were on, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, or they're totally private, or they're somewhere in between. You know, there are some corridors that, you know, from an economic perspective, it's going to be very difficult to get them to pencil um, mm-hmm. if the operator needs to make all of the capital investment. Um, right. So, you know, in those cases, what we've discussed with, you know, and presented to Congress is we can help Congress's money go further and and we can alleviate government of the operating subsidies um, um, and, and, and make money as a result. So there's a there's 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 really um, a lot of different spaces in which uh, the government and private operators like ourselves can play. Um, you know, and there's lots of different models to draw from all over the world. Um, but, you know, in, in, in our initial two projects, we've got two projects that we believe will be very highly profitable. And as a result, we're prepared to invest the significant capital necessary to make those two happen. But that may not be the case for every, you know, city pair. Okay. So, so talking about what you're working on. So the first one that you're, that you're actually working on is in Miami to Orlando. So how's that going? Uh, you re- referencing what you just talked about, you know, the the working together with government and 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 you know ha- helping their money go further. I know this, you know, that's not federal; it's it's statewide. But but what, how, how's that going in that way? 
Yeah. So, well, there's different aspects to this, right? So uh, the Florida project was really our first project and it was born on third base. We already owned the freight railroad that connects Miami to Jacksonville. Mm-hmm. Um, we negotiated with the uh, state to connect um, that corridor into Orlando, which so our, our corridor runs along the East Coast. Um, we wanted to get to Orlando, which is in the center of the state. So we needed to get from the East Coast to the center of the state. So we negotiated a, a, a lease agreement with the state to be able to use a state highway. Um, uh, and we are building new construction on that state highway to connect our existing network that we already owned uh, to Orlando. Uh, and we're actually where our station is going to be at the Orlando International Airport. So we um, spent about $2 billion on what we describe as phase one, which is the first 67 miles between Miami and uh, West Palm Beach. Mm-hmm. And we're deploying another approximately $2.5 million, $2.5 billion of capital to complete uh, those improvements from Palm Beach up to uh, Coco, which is where we hang a left uh, to run along mm-hmm. the highway into the Orlando airport. So we completed construction on phase one at the end of 2017, and we began operating our trains in 2018, just between Miami and West Palm Beach with a stop in Fort Lauderdale. Um, we carried about a million people in our first year. And then fortunately, as a result of COVID, we stopped operating in March of 2020. Uh, but we continued construction to Orlando and we're going to be uh, done with that by the end of uh, next year. So um, we'll resume operations in South Florida here in, a, in the next few months. Um, we will then um, connect to Orlando a year or so after that. Uh, we're opening some additional stations here in South Florida in Aventura and Boca. So we'll become a six station system. And we're really excited. I mean, we were you know, blowing the doors off this thing. I mean, all of these systems take a minute to ramp up. Yeah. Um, even the Acela that carries 10, 11 million people a year now start their first year, they carried like a half a million people, right? So if you look at Italo, Acela, Renfi, you know, you name it, those first two, three years as you're penetrating the market, um, you know, that's sort of a normal adoption curve. Um, so we experienced a pretty positive adoption curve relative, you know, in the context of us being the only private operator of intercity passenger rail um, mm-hmm. in a state that loves their car, um, we were <laughs> exceptionally pleased with the results in our first year. To be able to get a million people off the road, out of their cars and onto our train was a pretty, um, you know, felt like, uh, um, you know, um, felt like success to us. Um, and by the time we shut down, we were on a, we were at a run rate that would have gotten us to double that ridership in our second year. Um, you know, so we were expecting two million in our second year, and we would have hit three million for the South segment, Miami to West Palm, uh, by year three. Um, and then, you know, once we open to Orlando, there are four hundred million trips between South Florida and Central Florida. Um, we're only looking to capture two or three percent of those. Okay. We're not for everybody. We're not trying to be the solution for every person. We, we, you know, we don't have to solve the problem for the family of six or the family of five or the family of four. Um, you know, our kind of average uh, group size was, you know, two point something. Uh, so so um, we we just believe there's room for, a, for, for alternative modes of travel um, on these very congested corridors. We're not going to be the solution for everybody, but we'll be the solution for you know, 3%, 5%, 7%. And that's really all you need to make these things viable. 
Okay. Um, so you are, I, I was reading your bio on the website and it said, uh, you, you're the first privately owned rail system in the United States in a hundred years. Right. And we talked about, like I, I mentioned earlier, you know, that I thought in, in Europe, it was a lot of government funding. I mean, this is a tall order, you know, because this is normally a business where basically if you're, you're not a, in some places you're a competitor to Amtrak, right? Like, do you go where they are or do you try to go where they aren't generally? Because I'm guessing in you know, city pairs, I mean, you talked about Acela and that's, you know, that, that's pretty entrenched. Like you're, you're probably not going to go to New York to Boston anytime soon. But, Unless we take over Acela. <laughs> there you go. Is, is, do you basically go where, where they're not? Not necessarily. We go where there's a need. Um, there is a train you can take from Orlando to the Miami airport. It'll take you about seven hours. It has about a 45% on-time performance record. Um, they don't have priority on the railroad. Um, and they're, you know, using 20-something-year-old rolling stock. So, you know, if that's the experience you're looking for, you can get it. Um, so, like, we're going to, you know, are we going to compete with them? Like, we don't view them as competition. They carry 50,000 people a year we carry 50,000 people like a week so yep. it's just a, you know it's just a different thing so so we we will what we are looking for are corridors like i said that are heavily you know congested and connect densely populated cities uh where there's a lot of traffic uh like that's where where we're able to be more efficient than going to the airport and more efficient than driving your car we're going to win um, every time. And that's like, not, you know, our theory, that's just, that's just a point of fact. If you look at, uh, intercity high-speed rail all over the planet. Okay. So you used the word experience a minute ago. And, um, so you have a background in the hospitality industry, which, which I'm sure plays into how you're approaching this. Um, everybody check, check out Brightline's website and, you know, some of the photos and things like that. It, your experience is more, I don't know if luxurious is the right word, but it's a business class. You know, it, it, it reminded me of a business class seat on a plane. Like it, it's a, it, it's a, it's a more upscale experience. Is that part that uh, that's certainly part of your pitch, right? 100%. I mean, we all live in this experience economy now where, you know, we care about where we, uh, we care about how we're treated. We care about the environment in which we're in. Um, and, you know, it's no longer sustainable to provide um, transportation as a commodity per se. Mm -hmm. um, that'll work at the lower end of the market, but you know, as buyers become more sophisticated, their expectations are higher. And it's no different from you know going to shop at Walmart versus going to shop at Whole Foods or your local farmers market. It's the same concept. So um, I came from the hotel industry where we took the commodity of accommodation and turned it into an experience. I was mostly focused on you know, four and five star hotels, independent lifestyle, boutique hotels, luxury hotels, where, where we could command a premium because we delivered a much, a far superior experience. And, um, I'm a big believer in that. I'm a big believer that if you deliver the experience, people are happy to pay for it. Uh, and it also differentiates you in a very meaningful way from the alternatives. So we, um, care about interior design we care about architecture we care about the people that we um, bring on board to service our guests we refer to our customers as guests uh, you know we care about food and beverage um, you know we think about the guest's experience through all five senses 
what they see, what they touch, what they feel, what they taste, right? Uh, what they hear, um, what they smell. So it's all, it's, it, 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 it is a holistic experience. Like the technology has to be amazing. Um, um, and the end to end experience, we have to think about the end to end experience. We're not just, you know, we're not just selling this commodity of an interstitial, you know, train station to train station journey. Um, we're selling really a door to door experience. Like we are, uh, increasingly thinking about how, you know, we, how do we get you to, to shift modes, uh, in terms of how you travel, how do we get you to do that? And we have to contemplate the entire experience from, you know, sitting on your couch to get into the ball game. How do, how do, how do all of those things happen? Um, you know, if I just try and sell a train ticket from Miami to Fort Lauderdale or from Orlando to Palm beach, um, you know, we're not going to win the war that way. We're, 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 you know, we'll get some decent ridership, but really what it's about at the end of the day is like, can we be a viable alternative to you driving your car? Uh, can we be faster, cheaper, and a better experience? And I believe that we can. So coming from the hospitality industry, and you're now running a train company, like how did, what made that happen? That's a huge leap. You must have seen opportunity here, but, but can, can you tell me a little bit about, you know, how that transition happened for you? Yeah. I mean, it, it goes back to what I said, the, 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 you know, selling commodities is no longer, uh, you know, th those are the, those you're not going to win that way. Uh, like, unless it's like oil or pork bellies or something, you know, <laughs> but if, if you're, if it involves another human being, you, you know, you've got to focus on the experience. So, uh, you know, I was, uh, as surprised as, you know, you would expect when I got a call to, you know, explore this opportunity, uh, but it didn't take me very long to understand. And I'd always thought about, you know, the experience economy and its application to other industries, whether that was like a student housing, assisted living facilities, you name it. There's, you know, there are a lot of industries that are going to transition and are transitioning from more commodity businesses to experience businesses. And why not travel um, and transportation? And certainly, you know, there are certain airlines who do it well. There are certain um you know, uh, there are limousine companies and other transportation companies that are out there that, that do focus on this. But train travel is a perfect, perfect uh, environment in which to implement uh, 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 a superior experience because you've got the station environment, you've got the onboard experience, you've got the digital experience. So um, the more I learned about what uh, our founder, Wes Edens, was trying to do, uh, the more it resonated with me that we could do something really special uh, with a system like this and, and really create an impact and change the way people think about train travel in this country permanently. Um, and we are already raising the bar and starting conversations that like would not have occurred but for our existence. Um, and whether that's at the federal level as it relates to you know their, their renewed interest in high-speed rail, uh, or whether it's like Amtrak themselves who are, you know, they've just announced that they're going to purchase billions of dollars of rolling stock from the manufacturer uh, that we use for our rolling stock. Uh, and they're effectively going to like plagiarize our design and, you know, everything that we've done, which is, you know, you know, that's a, one of the greatest forms of flattery. Right. So, so. Right. We really do think, and like you can see it, we're changing train, we're train, changing train travel for the good permanently in this country, um, and we're just getting started. I mean, we we we're we are 
you know, operating a fraction of a fraction of what we uh, ultimately hope to operate. And I think that we can probably solve, you know, provide other mobility solutions uh, under this, you know, broad umbrella that we've created uh, of Brightline. So you just mentioned a, uh, a specific, I was going to ask you about the impact of potential impact of the infrastructure bill. And uh, you just mentioned one, basically, that yeah. that's a that's a very direct impact for you. What other impacts are there for you? I mean, I would imagine that the that the president being a big fan of rail travel is a good thing overall for you guys, right? You would think so. Uh, it remains to be seen. Um, you know, government's government. Um, yeah. But I think that infrastructure is a phenomenal way to restart an economy. Um, infrastructure is necessary uh, uh, in order to enable economic movement and activity. Um, and we have a serious deficiency in terms of how, uh, you know, much infrastructure exists in this country to move people around. Um, what we, and I, as I articulated a little bit earlier, we are laser focused on our dialogue with the federal government being, let us help you make your dollars go further. Mm -hmm. um, let us help you make your dollars go further. We know how to implement, you, you know, if they spend 80 billion or a trillion dollars on infrastructure, or they want to spend $250 billion on high-speed rail in America, like how long is that going to take for them to implement that through Amtrak? Right. You know, they need other operators. They need implementers. They need, you know, and the private sector, like, I don't care what industry you're looking at is just generally more efficient about implementing, you know, deploying those dollars and implementing these systems. Um, you know, we built phase one in three years, which is like lightning, you know, that's like warp speed compared right. to, you know, how long some of these other things get built. Um, you know, California, I, I, again, I don't want to, um, these are very hard things to do. So I don't want to be critical of anybody else and I'm not involved in their day-to-day -day situations, but you know, a lot of these projects are costing, orders of magnitude more in terms of uh, dollars per mile uh, for construction and, and duration of the construction period. So we're very proud of the fact that we've been able to, you know, deploy capital really efficiently, get operations stood up. I mean, we, we are effectively the first to actually start to operate an intercity passenger rail system in the country in over a hundred years using private money. Um, you know, the, the LA to Vegas system will be the only, uh, you know, first and only true high-speed rail system in the country at, uh, you know, traveling at speeds of 200 miles an hour. Like, it doesn't exist. Like, we are, you know, the pioneers here, and we're actually making it happen. Uh, we're deploying capital or we're, we're selling tickets, right? We'll be selling tickets here in a few weeks. Right. Uh, so, um, I said weeks, I meant months. Um, so, uh, that's, that's for for all of our regulars who are dying for <laughs> us to get back. They're going to jump all over that if they hear this uh, yeah. and be like, you know, clicking on the website. So, so you know, there's a tremendous opportunity right now that we hope the federal government, um, you know, we hope they share our vision for how one plus one can equal to like three or five here. Um, so, but it remains to be seen, you know, we're, we've had one bill come out that, you know, wasn't terribly meaningful for us. Uh, there's more bills that are out there, um, that are, you know, have the potential of getting, uh, advanced, uh, that I think could benefit us. So, um, we'll see where it all shakes out, but, um, you know, they certainly are saying the right things. It's a matter of whether they'll do them or not.
Okay. Um, you guys are also, in, in addition to pioneering in, in high-speed rail, which a lot of people talk about doing, and you're actually, I mean, you know, shovels in the ground, I guess is the lack, for lack of a better term. Uh, you're pretty green focused. I mean, clean biodiesel fuel uh, for lower emissions, solar power for your stations, uh, EV charging options in your parking lots. I, I think that that any, I would imagine any company at this point that's making an investment in transportation needs to do that. Is it cost effective in the short term? I mean, it's, it's an investment for sure. Does it cost more money to operate that way? No. In fact, in many ways, it's like far more efficient. Um, and there's other returns that are difficult to identify kind of when you're sitting down with your investment committee and trying to get these things like, you know, green lighted. But uh, the the focus of our community, our target guests, our target customers, um, you know, ESG is just heightened in every, in everyone's sensibilities right now. Um, you know, you you were all seeing the promulgation of e-bikes and electric cars and people putting solar solar panels on their roofs and people want this. And you know, if we're going to spend billions on creating these significant infrastructure assets, um, you know making sure that we're leveraging the best uh, technology and building materials and methodologies uh, to ensure that we're doing things in a sustainable way, um, it, you know, is not a significant uh, uh, um, additional investment. It's like, a, you know, in the, in, the, in the scheme of things, it's a rounding error, right? It's, it's, you know, so from an investment perspective, it makes all the sense in the world to spend the additional money so that, we're building something that is going to be for the ages that's sustainable. Um, I mean, even the fact that we've got biodiesel on these trains in Florida, we're like, we'd love to move to hydrogen ultimately here or battery mm -hmm. power ultimately here. Um, LA to Vegas will be a completely electric system and we'll be generating our own power for that. Um, you know, from predominantly from solar. So, okay. and, and, you know, we can, so, so it's, and, and technology has gotten so good now, um, you know, and all of that technology was, 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 was very expensive and it's just becoming less expensive, you know, more affordable, more approachable, easier to implement. Um, so I feel like we have a responsibility as we make these significant infrastructure investments to ensure that we do so in, a, in an environmentally responsible way. Okay. What's the LA to Vegas status, by the way? We'll be permitted by the end of the year. We'll be raising money in that time frame or early spring as well. It's about a three and a half year build. Okay. And at how much is that going to cut the travel? Because it's a three hour from downtown LA to Vegas? Well, yeah. So, so you know, we've got some options, you know, similar to South Florida. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to be in LA, we'll be sort of picking people up along the way, if you will, yep, you know, right. from, you know, Union Station to Victorville, if you will, or El Monte or, you know, so, so, You'll be picking people up along the way, but once you sort of get to the, you know, LA basin, you're talking about like 90 minutes from, okay. wow. you know, from there to, to the strip. 
Um, so, you know, you'll on a Friday evening, you'll probably have like three trains pass you, um, you know, on your drive across the, uh, across I-15. Nice. As a, I'm, I'm a casino guy. So that sounds like a really great <laughs> option. Yeah. For, and, and, and I mean, just psychologically, John, just think about, you know, you know, if you've been to Vegas from the West, from LA and, you know, you're sitting there on Sunday morning thinking about driving back, right? Imagine you no longer need to worry about what time you leave. You don't need to, you know, worry about what condition you're in, frankly, uh, mm-hmm. right? You know, which is right. important, more important for some than others. Uh, you can literally say, and it's predictable and there's a train every hour, right? So, okay, I'm going to get on the, you know, I'm going to enjoy the, Sunday pool party and like in 90 minutes to two hours, I'm home. Um, I think it totally changes, um, you know, people's Las Vegas experience and, you know, the preponderance of, of Vegas customers, particularly the regulars, like if you, you know, Caesars and asked them to show you a heat map of their top, you know, customers, it, they'd all be living in the LA basin. They'd all be living yeah. in that basin. So, so, I think it completely changes that dynamic for people. And then I think there are other offshoot, you know, benefits for folks too. So we're super excited about that. It's really into a really intuitive corridor. There are about 60 million trips on that every year. Um, again, we're, we're just going to provide another mode and we think we'll shift, you know, 10, 15% of those people to the train and induce new demand for people who like never wanted to do that drive or did it once and are never going to do it again. Absolutely. All right. That sounds great. Last question for you. So we talked to the reason we wanted to talk to you was because in the transportation industry, I mean, you, you appeared, this is a, your company's a game changer. What other companies do you see, whether it's a, it's a, it's a mode of transportation, it's a technology, what other companies, and I always tell people, you can't say Tesla. um, What companies do you see as game changers that maybe we people don't think about? You know, um, I'm coming off a conversation this morning where we were just talking about the micro mobility landscape and mobility as a service. And, you know, if you look at the number of players that have entered that market in the last, just not like 10 years or five years, but like two years, um, everything from, you know, um, electric helicopters to scooters to, you know, you name it. Um, and then, so, so, you know, difficult to call out an individual operator or our business or brand per se, because, you know, a lot of them are doing the same things. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think it's going to be fascinating to see who emerges uh, at the top there, because these things ultimately end up getting consolidated, right? And, and whether or not like the Googles, Amazons, Facebooks, et cetera, are ever going to get into this space, this mobility space, right? Um, like it's going to just be an interesting thing to watch. Um, but like, if you're not informed, there's a, there's a, and, and I'm sure you, there's a lot of data out there now and there's micro mobility websites and newsletters and, you know, there's things that you can, you can read up on. It's just become this huge landscape and technology is, is so you all, you have all of these new alternatives, whether it's like Lilium with their helicopters and it's, you know, Lime and all these other folks with the scooters and e-bikes. I mean, if you see the trajectory of e-bike sales in Europe over the last 
12 months, mm -hmm. it would like, it would, it would, it's shocking. Um, yeah. So the whole landscape is, is changing in terms of the actual logistics themselves. Now overlay technology on top of all of those alternatives um, and, and, you know, technology is enabling multimodal travel so that you have this real alternative to a car. Like train travel was so challenging in the past, even in, you know, countries where it's very developed um, because of the first and last mile friction. Yeah. People, if you're sitting on your couch and you need to get to the ball game and you're thinking about, you know, Will I take the train or the car? I got to figure out, well, what time do I need to leave the house to get to the station? Do I need to park my car? How much does that cost? Then I got to get a ticket. Then when I get to the other end, how do I get to the ballpark? And, you know, if I call an Uber, will there be one available and all the rest of it? So technology is now eliminating all of that friction. Uh, because like, you know, with all of those decisions and all of that friction, a lot of people just like put their hands in their pocket, grab their car keys and walked into, you know, got into their car that was sitting right. in their front drive. Now, granted, like, that fr the friction for that experience was more on the back end when you get stuck in traffic and can't find parking, but or, or you don't want to drive home at the end of whatever event you've gone to, but you don't think about that, right? What technology is enabling and with all of these different modes of travel is all that friction now goes away because now I can, you know, I can travel on, imagine having a multimodal experience that looks and feels like an Uber ride. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm able to basically, this is where I want to go. These are my preferred modes of travel based on either travel time, comfort, or affordability. And, you know, I click the go button and somebody comes and picks me up within, you know, blankety blank minutes. Yeah. Right. And I'm able to track, track my journey. I'm ticketed for the whole thing. I've paid for the whole thing. Right. So that mobility as a service notion, I think that's going to be the game changer. Um, you know, and the companies who are doing that right now, whether it's like there's a company called IOMOB, there's a company called, um, you know, there's a, there are a lot of countries who are already implementing these at a, at a, at a sort of, um, at a government level, as a, at an agency level, they're enabling, um, you know, technology to provide their residents, their citizens with uh, all of these different uh, modal alternatives. Uh, and facilitating that through technology and people are able to pay a monthly fee. And I just think the whole world is going to change. And particularly now where people are sort of saying, okay, I'm no longer doing a five day work week. I'm doing a three day work work week. So maybe I don't need a car anymore. Yeah. Um, so like, how about I trade my car in for, uh, you know, I don't know, a, like lifetime membership on this like mobility platform where, you know, so there's, so, so it's, it's a crazy time, right? Cause like, you know, it's a crazy time right now. So, so I think it'll be, I think, we're experiencing a bit of a revolution at the moment mm -hmm. uh, as it relates to mobility. Um, and it's going to be very, you know, I think we got to watch all the players. I think there's lots of potential out there. It's lots of smart people and plenty of not so smart people, but you know, people are going to, you know, there's going to be some of these, so, someone's going to get really well funded and they're going to you know, like knock it out of the park. Um, and I think, you know, it's our goal to have that role here in, in Florida uh, yeah. and LA to Vegas and potentially other corridors. Uh, we want to be that player, uh, that facilitates the entire journey from end to end. Um, so, um, again, sorry, I'm not giving you the direct answer here. There's nobody that stands out for me per se that I can think of right now. I just think that it's, I, I, my comment would be on the industry as a whole being, being a fascinating space to monitor right now. 
Awesome. No, that was really, I, you know what? That was a really interesting answer. And especially, yeah, the, my, I, I think in the first podcast I did when we launched this, uh, my boss, our agency president, talked about a, a thing that connects many modes of transportation. You know, like he, he mentioned something similar. So that rang a bell in my head when you said that. So, yeah, that's really great. Yeah. Uh, um, Patrick, uh, you know what? I, I would love to talk all day, um, but we got to let you go. Uh, People, everybody, you can learn more about Brightline on their website at gobrightline.com and on all the usual social media platforms. Um, hopefully, you know, I, I can't wait to see how you guys progress and, and when, uh, you know, that you, you finish your Miami to Orlando. And, and this has been great. Thanks so much for your time and good luck with everything you're doing. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. See you on board. All right, everybody, if you enjoyed the show. Please subscribe and leave us a review, uh, whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're watching or listening. It'll help us get the word out. And we'd really appreciate it. To learn, to learn more about HMH, the Transportation Transformation Agency, visit us at hmhagency.com or on all those usual social, me social media platforms that I mentioned. For Patrick Goddard, I'm John Halpin. Thank you for listening. And we'll be back soon with a new episode of the Future of Transportation podcast. <music>